0: Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to start reading here in just a couple of minutes. But we take our study of the enduring church into the first three chapters of the book of Revelation because these chapters are filled with the language of endurance. John writes this book technically to seven churches, and he's going to tell these seven churches that I am a partner in endurance with you. While he is in exile for preaching the gospel, he's going to receive this vision from the Lord, write these letters, write this letter, the book of Revelation, to these churches and saying, we are enduring together for the cause of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are actually seven letters that are written directly to these seven churches, and all of them are going to end with the same phrase, a version of the same phrase. To the one who conquers, I will give. Some of your translations will even say, to the one who overcomes, I will give. So God is pressing His church into endurance, whatever it is that they face. John and these churches, we're going to discover as we read through and study the context, they were experiencing various levels of pushback to their faith from instances of internal division, to false teaching inside of the church, so much of what Jude was warning us about, to cultural conflict, those outside of the body of Christ were putting pressure upon the church to change what they believe and what they did, to just outright persecution and death. There are various levels of opposition these churches are going through. In fact, it can be said that this entire book, the book of Revelation, is written to encourage Christians to endure. We begin with the vision of Jesus Christ, and we end with John watching Christ become King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The entire book is written to encourage us to endure. Things are going to get a little out of control. You read this book and you realize this is a little out of control. This is a little bit crazy. But the King is coming, the King will win, and he will take all of his own to be with him forever. That's the large arc of what happens inside of this book. Our focus is going to be on how Jesus introduces Himself to John, how Jesus introduces Himself to us, and then what He says directly to those seven churches and to us as well. So we continue to answer the question, what does it mean for the church to endure? So, the setting itself, where John is, what he is going through, and then the vision that he receives, the revelation, gives us our first answers to that question. So, here's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. So, John himself has been exiled, he is on an island, he is separated from the church that he was helping to lead. The island that he is on is not necessarily a prison colony but he has been forcibly removed by government officials. We don't like what you're teaching. We don't like what you're doing, so we're going to remove you from your church. We're going to put you on this island for a while. And this is often how it works. Instead of necessarily going for the congregation, these Roman governors or these governmental leaders will go straight for the person who is up front doing the preaching and separate them from the body. So John is in exile for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what happens is, in exile, John sees Jesus in all of his glory. John, we're going to discover, is worshiping while he is in exile, and he sees Jesus in his full glory. Exile has not separated John from God. Opposition, struggle, difficulty, confusion, none of that has separated John the disciple from his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So John will see Jesus in all of His glory. And a lot of the language that we're just going to read this morning in chapter 1 is the kind of language that ought to, over time, just kind of overwhelm us about who Jesus is. And the last thing that John sees explicitly in chapter 1 is that Jesus is in the midst of His church. The image, the way that it is crafted for him is that Jesus is literally sitting in the middle of his churches. He's sitting at the center of the body that he has built and the church that is his. What John sees is Jesus at the center of his church. These churches that we're going to read about in chapters 2 and 3, these are real churches. These are physical places full of normal people trying to walk through their daily lives, their cultural issues, and their faith. Oftentimes, chapters 2 and 3, when we read through or study the book of Revelation, it's easy to take those seven churches and to think, well, what else does this mean? What else is being said to us? And there may be some merit to that kind of interpretation, but our focus specifically is going to be, these are real people. These are real individuals walking through the streets of their cities trying to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is among us, How can we ever give up? How can we ever lose hope? How can we ever despair? How can we ever not have courage when we know that this Jesus Christ is right at the middle, right at the heart of His church? So let's begin reading. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ what is written in it? We listen to it and we live it, for the time is near. For the time is near. The name of this book, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The name in this book is a really interesting Greek word. It is actually the word apocalypsis. So that's the Greek word that is the title of this book, That word means, in the Greek, to reveal or to disclose. So that's why our English translations use this word, the revelation of John, the apocalypsis of John, to reveal or to disclose. And what is told us in these first three verses, that this this is a disclosure of the things that must soon take place, the text says. And that's what's revealed to John throughout the rest of the book. So now that Greek word comes to us as the word apocalypse. Now we use that term as the dramatic end of all things or a cataclysmic event. Now our sense of the word apocalypse comes from what happens in the rest of the book of Revelation. We get the sense of the apocalyptic ending of history as we know it and the beginning of Christ's reign for all of eternity. So that's what's happening right here at the very beginning of this book. Most of the rest of this book is about what will soon take place, the text says. The text says this a couple of times. This book is about what must soon take place. So this is part of our perspective as we listen to Christ, speak to churches, going through difficult and confusing times, He has led us in on where it's all going. All of this will happen, all of this must happen, Christ is coming and we will reign with Him forever and ever. It's incredible stuff. Jesus, it says, and His messengers, angels, that's the sense of that word, God's messengers, they make it known to John. And then the text says that God's people will be blessed as they read it out loud and as they hear it and as they keep it. They hold to it and they live it out. That's exactly how this letter would have first been received. By the time this letter is written down and begins to circulate its way through those seven churches and then through the rest of the churches, that's what would happen. They would receive the letter, someone would stand up and they would read it and others would listen and we would all be expected to live according to the words that are given to us in Scripture. So we are blessed when we hear this and when we keep it and when we live it out. So here's a little bit more about what John has to say. Here's John's personal greeting to these seven churches here, beginning in verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. The language of the perfect, absolute eternality of God is throughout this book. Who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What an introduction. What an amazing and glorious thing that is laid before our feet just as we open this book. John has seen all of this take place. He's been a faithful witness to it. He has written it down, and then when he puts it together to write it to the churches, this is how he describes who this is about, who sends all of this, who this God is that we worship. In these churches, right, there and these letters that are written to them. These are our focus. This is the God who writes to them. John himself is in this really unique pocket of time that we're going to discover. He was preaching and he was leading a church, probably the church in the city of Ephesus at the time, and he has now been forcefully separated from them, and he is alone with God. So, we cannot make the mistake of thinking that a difficult time is the same thing as time apart from God. It is so easy for us to make that assumption when things get complicated. But here's John in exile, and it's not time apart from God, but it's actually this powerfully intimate time with God. So, we must keep an eye on this thought as we work through this text. And he greets them in the name of their God. And if you're careful with what's happening in this text, you kind of pay attention for a couple of minutes. He greets them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it is the triune God who greets them, the God who was and who is and who is to come. I am the Lord your God, the Alpha and the Omega, all this language of our eternal Father, the one who is there before all of creation, the one who spun creation into existence, the one to whom all creation is finally headed. We see all of that happen in the book of Revelation. And then we get this really cool stuff, this image of the Holy Spirit So it's an image that shows up a few times in a couple of Old Testament passages and then throughout the rest of Revelation as well, the seven spirits that are before the throne of God, that is an image of the Spirit of God and of His work, that He is everywhere, that He sees all things, and He is this intermediary, so to speak, between God and the rest of His church. The seven spirits is an image used to speak of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. And then John tells us, Who Jesus is and what Jesus does. This is cool stuff. So, Jesus is here's part of what he says Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings on earth. This is the Jesus who greets you. This is the Jesus who is among you. He is the faithful witness. That phrase is used two more times in the book of Revelation, and it's used inside the letters to the seven churches. And then you and I are asked to be faithful witnesses. But Christ is our example of what it means to be a faithful witness to the things of God. All that He said, all that He did, all that He endured, His crucifixion, all of these things. He has gone before us as a faithful witness, So now you and I are expected to walk in that same example, to walk in that path that we endure because He's gone ahead of us, and He has endured, and He's been the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, the one who who was raised from the dead and who will lead all of us in resurrection. There is some really incredible language inside of this text, and John has told us that eventually every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him will see Him, even those who rail against Him or, uh, or arise up in wrath against God, they will see Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And again, as you sort of walk your way through the rest of this book, if you decide to read through the rest of Revelation, we see this imagery in just dramatic fashion. One of the most, to me personally, dramatic moments in all of Scripture happens in Revelation 4 and 5 when... John is before the throne of God, and there's this scroll that's brought to him that is sealed with seven seals. It's written on the front, and it's written on the back. And the question is asked, can anyone, is anyone worthy to open the scroll? And nobody is worthy to open the scroll. And John knows what that means, the unfolding of the will of God, the, the all of creation coming into the, the, the hands and the, 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 the kingdom of God. And no one can do it. So John begins to weep, and then someone places their hand on his shoulder and said, don't worry, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here, and he can open the scroll. And John says, and then I looked, and from the throne what I saw was the lamb as it had been slain. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of all the kingdoms on earth, and the lamb as he was slain. Even those who pierced him are going to see Him, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of all kings on earth. The kingdoms of this world, and even our spiritual enemy, Satan himself, feel as if throughout the book of Revelation, they are able to muster enough power to unthrone, to dethrone God, and it fails every time. Every ounce of power brought against God in this book fails. Jesus Christ, the one who was slain, the one who rose again from the dead, is the ruler of all the kings on the earth. This is who Jesus is, he says. And this is what Jesus does. We get that glorious, magnificent language of King of kings and of Lord of lords. And it is that Jesus who then, John says, does this. He loves us. He frees us, and He makes us His kingdom, a kingdom of priests to our God. This King of all is also profoundly and intimately invested in every single one of His children, and He gives His life to us. God loves us. Jesus loves us. He freed us. God's children are no longer captive to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin inside of this life. And we grow in that and we discover that. But what John sees through this book is that eventually all of that's going to be gone and we are freed in every sense of the word if we belong to Jesus Christ. So much of the rest of this book details the rebellion of those who are completely captive to sin and in rebellion against God. It's stunning how captivity to to sin works inside of this book. There are two places inside of this book, chapter 9 and I believe again in chapter 16, where the text tells us that the people of the earth who are rebelling against God, they see the power and the judgment of God and their response to the judgment of God. The text says they continue to worship their demons. It's amazing what captivity to sin does to us, how it blinds us and turns us against God. But in Jesus... We are freed from all of that. Our eyes are open. It's incredible. It would actually be a very useful devotion. It would actually be a very useful study for you to just simply list out, write out the things that we hear in chapter 1 about who Jesus is, about what Jesus does. Just list these things and spend time with them, pray through them, think through them, hunt hunt them down in the rest of Scripture and come to know Jesus Christ and expand our vision of who Jesus is. The bottom line is, friends, Christ is coming back, all evil will be done away with, and God is all the power. That's the bottom line. Christ is coming back, all evil will be done away with, and God has all the power. John says, and behold, he is coming again in the clouds. This, this is a cool thing that happens here because John has seen this kind of thing before. He's been told this kind of thing before. Listen what happens in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He spent some days with his disciples, and now they're on top of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus ascends back into heaven, and here's how it goes. And when He, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing up into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. John is given... The blessing of seeing both of these things. As he physically watches it happen there in Acts chapter 1 and as he watches it happen here at the end of the book of Revelation. And now remember, friends, all of this about the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. This isn't filler stuff. This isn't we had to reach a word count so we're gonna throw a bunch of stuff in and make sure we get it. All of this is written to Christians in real churches, trying to make sense of their faith in their context. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean for me to overcome, to endure, to persevere? In this world that I am living in, it all begins with this kind of vision of Jesus Christ and who He is. Remember, all of this is designed to make sure that we see Christ as clearly as we possibly can. Remember, our description of endurance is clarity about Jesus Christ and courage of our faith, the courage of our faith. So, friends, this is important. If our Christ is small, our faith will be small and our courage will be easily overrun. So before we even get into those of you who live in Laodicea, those of you who live in Ephesus, those of you who live in Philadelphia, I want to deal with the details of the culture that you live in, the things that you're wrestling with, the, the divisions and the false teaching that's inside of your church. Before we even get there, we need to make Jesus Christ as big as He really is inside of our own vision. We need a larger vision of Jesus Christ, who is greater than everything we are facing or will face. And friends, if I can just be frank with you, 2020 was way too big for too many people. 2020, in all of its glory, (laughs) was too much for a lot of people. And if it was too much for us, if it was too much for me, if it was too much for you, right now is the right moment to recalibrate. If the political division and anger and frustration overwhelm your vision of Jesus Christ and who He is, it's time to recalibrate. If your fear and anxiety over COVID has become too much for you, it is time to recalibrate and make Jesus bigger than all of that. Whatever it is that has happened, Jesus is greater. Jesus is bigger. And our vision of, his, of Him has to be so great that everything else is going to be able to fit into that. He is the ruler of all the kings on earth, including this president and the last president and whoever it is you did or did not support, Jesus is the ruler of all of those kings on earth. He is the one who was and who is, and even through a pandemic is the one who is still to come. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. This kind of sight helps us see what is really going on, and I use that language on purpose. It helps us to see this kind of language about Jesus, about what is really going on. Friends, the reality of the spiritual realm is often very different than what our senses and our fears tell us. We need to learn to see Jesus greater than everything else. So John just lays this incredible stuff at our feet about Jesus Christ. He says, this is who writes to you. This this is who we see. And then Jesus, or excuse me, John then speaks of himself and and who is now writing to the rest of the church. Verse 9, John says this, I, John, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Your brother and your partner in the patient endurance that is in Jesus Christ. John is not the only one putting up with some kind of opposition or some kind of conflict with his faith. Because he is a follower of Jesus Christ. He says that we are, all of us are. In every situation, these seven churches is different. But he says, look, all of us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're wrestling with something. And so we're doing this together as followers of Jesus Christ. John has been forcibly moved by a government. The churches he writes to are suffering in one form or another. It might be very easy to say that things don't look good for John if the, 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 whatever governor is in charge of the city of Ephesus has enough power to pick up John, not for being a criminal, not for murder, not for whatever it is, but for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they have enough power to pick him up and forcibly move him to this little island, separate from him from his church, we might say, well, things don't look good for the future of the church if the government has this much power and can shut them down. The language that we tend to use or that we tend to hear is, well, the church is on the wrong side of history. The people who are able to wield cultural and governmental power right now, that's the right side of history. We hear that language, right? So is John on the wrong side of history with this? Well, instead of beginning to think that, well, maybe the state is right, instead of thinking that, well, maybe I'm the wrong side of history... What John realizes is that opposition to his faith gives John a reason to stay faithful. This is how it works. I get pushed against, and so what I do is I remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And I learn what it means right now to show the courage of my faith and to encourage others to do the same. He says, look, friends, I am your partner in the faithful endurance that there is in Jesus Christ. It is the opposition to the church that is false. It is the gospel that is true. Those who oppose the gospel need the gospel. That's our perspective. That anyone who opposes the gospel on any level, that's someone who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our perspective. And those who receive the gospel are grateful forever. If there's any question about who wins in the end, and who is King of kings and Lord of lords, just read through the rest of this book. Get to chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, where there's perfect and absolute eternity with the reign of Jesus Christ. John stands in this long line the New Testament teaching on what it means to endure, even when we suffer through endurance, whatever level of suffering it is. Listen to James, the disciple James in chapter one, verses two and four, two through four, he says this: "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is this endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't give up, don't flag, don't don't grow lazy in your steadfastness, but let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is how James sees it. This is how the Apostle Paul, who endured a lot for the gospel of Jesus Christ, puts it. In the book of Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Not only that, but we in fact rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I love that. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance just makes you weary and worn out. You got to take a nap and just wait for Jesus to come. That's what it feels like, it's not what he says. He says it actually produces hope. It makes us more hopeful, not less. And it is in the eyes of James and of Paul and of John the tension that creates the strength of our faith. Listen to how Paul puts it when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So, in other words, we've gone through a lot of affliction, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ from city to city to city. Paul even uh, details some of that inside of 2 Corinthians. We've gone through a lot of affliction, but it's for your comfort, and it's with your affliction as well, and the comfort that we have received from God, we've received from Him so that we can give you His comfort. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort when you experience, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Over and over again. Whatever level of tension or opposition you receive for being a follower of Jesus Christ out in the open, we do this together, and it produces hope. We endure. We endure together, whatever it is. Whatever suffering, whatever opposition we face is not empty and meaningless. It's one of the most disheartening things inside of the human experience is meaningless suffering. John does not see what he is going through as meaningless. But if whatever it is is put inside of the context of Jesus Christ, it turns into eternal and unceasing comfort. If whatever opposition to the faith is intended to snuff it out, the best defense to that is to come out of it stronger and deeper In the faith, we've quoted this pastor before. His name is Pastor Wang Yi. He's a Chinese pastor who, a little over a year ago, was sentenced to nine years in prison for for um, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through various means, he's been able to get letters out um, from where he is and out to the rest of the church. And here's part of what he wrote when he was first um, when he was first arrested and thrown to prison for preaching the gospel. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is, a, there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. There's a freedom they can't touch. There's an authority that is higher than theirs. We worship the Jesus who is the ruler of all the kings on earth. So instead of being on the wrong side of history, John realizes that the opposition to his faith gives him more reason to stay faithful. And instead of dropping his faith in exile, John worships, and he sees Jesus Christ. I love this. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's essentially what that means. I was in communion with the Spirit of God. It was a day of worship for him. Maybe it was actually their normal day of worship. Maybe it was resurrection Sunday morning. But he says, look, I was in the Spirit on the day that I set aside to worship my Lord. And this is what he sees absolutely nothing can separate you from Jesus Christ. Nothing can. Friends, our perspective to whatever life throws at the children of God needs to become one of, there is something for me to learn here. I need to know Jesus more. Instead of wallowing in frustration, instead of uh, growing lax in our faith, whatever life throws at us, we should be able to say, I found myself in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Even in exile, John sees Christ in all of His glory. So here's part of what John sees. As this book opens up, as the revelation of Jesus Christ opens up, in verse 12, It goes like this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Revelation is full of stuff like this. This is the only way I know how to explain what I saw when I saw Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars that are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what Christ is standing in the midst of. Jesus, right now, holds the keys to death. So even death itself. Is no reason for us to not endure. Even death itself means that you and I are still firmly in the hand of Jesus Christ. Most of what we see, what we just read in those passages of Scripture, all of it is imagery of Jesus Christ in His full divinity, in His full power, in all of His glory. It mirrors an event in the life of Jesus Christ where there was a glimpse of this on top of the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And this imagery that we read as well also mirrors the images of God on His throne and Jesus coming to conquer all evil. We read this kind of imagery in Isaiah chapter 6, in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Daniel chapter 7, and then in Revelation 4 and 5 and Revelation 19. It's as if all of this is crammed into this one passage here about who Jesus is it's the kind of image that you're not necessarily intended to overanalyze but to let it overwhelm you to let it overwhelm me this is the jesus who saved my soul this is the one who came and walked in this earth who taught us about who god is this is this is the one who allowed himself to be hung on a cross and die This is the one who had the power to overcome the grave itself, ascended into heaven, and is our soon-and-coming king. This is the Jesus that holds you, who holds me. What on earth would I give that up for? What what on earth is greater than that? What on earth would, would overcome or overwhelm all of that? Why would I not endure in my faith with Jesus Christ? John sees it, he's overwhelmed, and he falls down as though he is dead. Divine power and divine authority is shown to him, and he cannot stand. Who, after all, can? It's incredible. And then I want to make sure we hear this. And this will be the note that we end on this morning as we think about what it means for the church to endure, why we begin with this image of Jesus Christ, even before we get into the details. This is what you're dealing with. I know what you're dealing with. Before we even get there, this Jesus Christ talks to John, talks to you and me, and says very simply, fear not. Fear not. Where there is fear because of the world around us, that is a place where Christ has not yet become king. Where He has not yet overwhelmed all of that in His greatness and who He is. Fear is natural to us. Fear comes to us in all kinds of different ways. Fear sneaks up on us. I get that. But that's why we begin with this vision of Jesus Christ. So that we know who can overwhelm all of that. The people who belong to Jesus Christ have no reason to fear. After all, look at who He is and all that He has done for us. Listen to this one little verse from Psalm, right in the middle of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do I know that this is the Jesus who dwells in the midst of His church right now? Do I know that I can walk out of this place and into the rest of my life fully and completely secure in this Jesus? Come what what may, but we endure and the world sees Jesus because of it. Let's pray.